So we want to emerge on day one, not only as a decarbonization and energy leader, but really as a true sustainability leader in what is probably the loftiest of these sectors. Good day, everyone, and welcome to Cutting Carbon. I'm your host, Jeff Goldmere, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Brian Goodnick. Brian, good day. Good day, Jeff. Looking forward to having a conversation with a returning guest today and uh, looking forward to getting into it with you. Yeah, really excited. So today our guest is Roger Martella. Roger is the Chief Sustainability Officer and Head of Engagement and Government Affairs for GE and soon-to-be GE Vernova. So really excited. Roger, good day. Welcome to Cutting Carbon. Jeff, great to hear you again. Brian, thank you for having me back. So Roger, as a returning guest, we're going to start off with uh, maybe a little tougher question for you today. So as you know, Roger, over the last few seasons, we've had this ongoing conversation about the need for a decade of action, how we're addressing climate change, and frankly, a sense of urgency. There is a clock ticking here on the environment. Now, we've talked about a decade of action. We view this as, as a transformative time. We use phrases like the energy transition. Transition implies there's a time element to it. So my question to you is kind of what's happening around the world today. You're talking to customers, you're talking to policymakers, and there's a lot going on. And maybe I'll use the phrase tailwinds because there's a lot happening maybe that's helping us in this decade of action or this transition. So can you kind of elaborate on what you're seeing around the world today? Jeff, thanks for the question. I think your premise is exactly right. We've been having really good conversations. And thanks to you and Brian for being such great honest brokers in these really impactful podcasts. But I think everybody would agree, everywhere I go in the world, the one thing everybody agrees on is it's time for action. Enough talk, let's get to action. And so as we sit here in April of 2023, I'm very happy to report, and this has been exciting for me personally and professionally, that we are, I think, officially in that transformation to action mode. As someone who's been in environmental policy for 30 years, climate change policy for 15 years, the things that we've been talking about, wanting to see happen, waiting for, advocating for, we're starting to see those tailwinds as we sit here in April of 2023. So that, that's a very exciting time for climate change and decarbonization. It's an incredibly exciting time for Vernova to be where it is today and transitioning to be this, this separate company. And maybe I could just share, because it has been so busy this year, it's been such a transformational time. I can't use that word enough because I think we have to pause and recognize we're living right now in a transformational period. It's a very positive thing. A few of those tailwinds that you were referring to that is kind of driving all of this, and I think of five that I think are really key and are going to be big factors this year going ahead into the future. The first is the role of government is realigning. And a lot of this derives from the Inflation Reduction Act. I think all our listeners know that back in August, the U.S. passed its first climate change law, the Inflation Reduction Act, and that was a big deal for the U.S., and I imagine we can talk about that a bit today. But I want to pause on the U.S. We're a global company. This is a global issue. Sometimes things happen that have much bigger impacts, and the IRA is an example of that. It's really been a catalyst for how governments are kind of realigning themselves to work with companies, enabling companies, coming up with carrots-types policies that facilitate the success of companies. I think perhaps the strongest example of this is the Department of Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm. I've heard this from her directly. She's been saying it a fair amount, that it's going to be industry that leads the energy transition with their investments, but the government's going to be an enabler. And coming from a very senior person in the government, I give her credit where credit is due to recognizing that industry is going to lead here, enabled by the government. I agree with that. This partnership, the realignment of the government is a really a fundamental change. 
kind of the second tailwind, you know, and part of that is the role of companies, the rise of companies. If we look at the Edelman Trust Barometer 2023, second year in a row, 32,000 people in 28 countries saying that companies are now the only trusted institution to solve these problems. Now, we wish everybody was trusted. We want to see government in there. We want to see NGOs in there. We want to see the media in there. But I think you get the point that looking at all these people in all these countries, putting companies as the only trusted institution to solve these issues, elevating the role of public-private partnerships. If we look at what we've been doing in Ukraine, providing the first emergency power to Ukraine through one of our aero-derivative portable turbines, that was truly a public-private partnership where the private sector did what it does best, the public sector did what it does best, and we were successful there. So the role of companies, the rise of companies, and the sense of companies having a purpose and being part of the solution is kind of the second tailwind we're seeing that's leading to action. The third is the role of electrification. These are frequently climate change conversations, decarbonization conversations. Vernova has two purposes, decarbonization and electrification. We're seeing electrification as really the here and now, the near-term driver. Decarbonization is something we're planning for, we're taking action for, 2025, 2030, 2050. Electrification is driving action every day, every week. As we see the issues in Ukraine, the targeting of the grid, concerns about energy security, energy access, and the need to harden the grid to prepare for decarbonizing other sectors, the investments are flowing from governments, from the private sector here and now today with electrification. That's great for decarbonization. It gets us to the same place. But if that's what's driving investments in the near term, we'll take it and we'll realize that decarbonization goes a long time. The fourth is, you know, a new issue that's arising. It's what I call preparing the ecosystem. This is an issue. Perhaps it's a good issue to have and to solve for. But now that we are seeing action, like we're we're seeing action today, we're seeing money flow, we're seeing the orders come in, we have to think about the next step. We have to think about how do we manage the bureaucracy, the permitting reforms that are necessary. How do we get our workforce ready to be able to build all this technology? How do we go into underserved communities and inspire people to come join us and become the technicians and the builders of the future and the innovators of the future all around the world from communities that perhaps have not played as big a role in the workforce here? And how do we tap the private finance sector, which is going to have force multiplier for the public dollars? How do we work with them in partnership to make sure they can counsel us on how to structure these investments? So this is the ecosystem issues that we're trying to work through with our diverse stakeholders right now. Then finally, the fifth tail one is just the global alignment here. I kind of call it the UAE effect. The the UAE is taking a leadership role in climate change this year with COP28. I think it will emerge this year as one of the world's most significant influencers in the climate change space, the decarbonization space, having an impact far beyond the Middle East and Africa. But what's really changed here is, in all my years working on the Paris Agreement and things like that, there was always a reluctance, the notion of a competitiveness. Like if we agree to something under the Paris Agreement, how does that put us at a competitive disadvantage versus other countries? This is now completely flipped, 180 degrees. Countries are now in a race to adopt decarbonization goals, to adopt electrification targets, because they see the opportunities in supply chain and workforce and being part of the solution and not being left behind. And so this global alignment of countries wanting to lead here, no longer be so resistant or concerned, is another big transition we're seeing that's setting us up for action, setting us up for success, and making this a transformative time.
You know, Roger, pretty amazing. I think we could spend an episode on each one of those tailwinds doing a deeper dive. That's not our plan, but a couple follow-up questions for you. Going back to your first tailwind around government realignment in the IRA, can you give some concrete examples of how the IRA is having this ripple effect, maybe in the U.S. as an example, and you have maybe an example of, of how that's rippling outside the U.S. as well as a, as a catalyst? Sure. The IRA, you know, Larry Culp has said this, Scott has said it, I've said it. This has just truly been a game changer. The first climate change law in the U.S., a carrots approach, which is what seems to be working here. Probably no company is more intertwined with the Inflation Reduction Act than GE. We intersect with virtually all the clean energy tax credits, renewable energy, nuclear, carbon capture, hydrogen, the manufacturing credits. And so we look at as a way to help our customers succeed. IRA is going to help GE succeed. It's going to help our customers succeed. But increasingly, the goals of the IRA are electrification and decarbonization. GE Vernova is needed for the success of the IRA. Government's increasingly saying, we need Vernova for our success in the goals because of how closely it's intertwined. I'd say we're in early days, but it's exceeding my expectations. It's working, simply stated. We're seeing the demand come in for the products you would want to see demand come in for the products that the IRA was seeking to promote. This is a law that's having the intended effect. It's translating to jobs and supply chain. We can talk about renewable energy and decarbonization, all those things, but one of the things that I'm particularly proud of in the U.S. is we are starting to design the clean energy economy of the future. We have shared very specific plans for what our factories will look like when we build them for offshore wind, for onshore wind, and a lot of detail. This is not hypothetical. We are posting jobs, we are planning factories, and these factories will include nacelles and blades for offshore wind turbines. They will look for 35% of our employees will come from underserved communities. We have a program called Pathways to Wind to make sure we're training the next generation of workers to be ready for the demand that's coming. So this is happening here and now, not only driving the demand for the technology, which I think is pretty evident, but I think just as importantly, the energy security, the supply chains, the competitiveness issues that the IRA was trying to get at are working. I'm excited to see us go forward with these factories to hire these people to get them trained and go into these communities. Globally, as I mentioned a little earlier, there's been some controversy about it. But when we talk to most countries, what they're saying is, how do we do that here? How do we create similar incentives for GE to come here, create factories, create jobs, and help us be part of it. And our answer is that we're happy to have those conversations. We want to build in the U.S. for our U.S. supply, but if another country wants to create incentives and opportunities and policies that drive similar demand, we're happy to build factories there. We're happy to hire people there. We are not wedded to any one country, any part of the world. So it's been great. We're in the early days of sharing best practices, both as GE and with some of our colleagues at other companies, on how countries can duplicate the success of the Inflation Reduction Act and how we can look to build those jobs and factories in those places too and expand the global clean energy economy. Outstanding. So Roger, maybe as, as a follow-up to that, you've talked about the transformative time and kind of the five big tailwinds, if you will, there. If that is the backdrop, as we're preparing to spin off GE Vernova as a standalone company, how does that give you confidence that GE Vernova can lead in this energy transition? Thanks, Brian. I will admit, I'll come into this one with a little bit of bias. I'm going to start with the notion, in my view, and I sincerely believe this, no company is going to have more impact here. No company is better aligned. This is just why I work here. I think it's why a lot of us work here is we believe in the purpose. I'm going to go further. It's not just no company. I don't think any other entity is going to have the far-reaching impact as a solver for these issues. 
as GE Vernova. At the end of the day, climate change, decarbonization, electrification, these are innovation and technology plays. Policies are important. We understand the science and we understand how all these different diverse stakeholders are coming together. All of this will be in partnership. But this is Vernova's DNA. It's innovation and technology. It's what this company has been doing for 130 years. And Vernova has the most diversified portfolio in the space, renewable energy, grid, gas, digital, breakthrough technologies. We've got the strong pipeline of decarbonization technologies, areas where we can really contribute and make better. We have the global scale and the footprint, the relationships with the customers and the governments. And we're just seeing all these things that we've been building for, all the things that have coming together and the stars lining up. And I just want to say, at the end of the day, we're still a business. We're passionate about solving for climate change. We're passionate about electrification. But we have to succeed as a business, first and foremost. We have to succeed for our shareholders. And that's not lost on anybody. And that is job number one. This hasn't maybe always been the easy part, particularly for some of our renewable energy businesses. I think Scott and Larry, Investor Day, we've been very transparent about that. We've shared that. And I just want to reinforce and reassert, as someone who has the privilege of being in some of the most senior discussions in this company, whether with the board or with the senior leaders, I just want to reassure that there is such a strong conviction with our board, with our senior leaders, with our frontline employees, that we're committed to succeed, not just for climate change, not just for electrification, but also for our shareholders, for the performance of this company. And I think people would be proud of the rigor of the tough questions going on in these meetings, of the proactive strategy, of the plans on how we're running these issues as a business, turning around renewable energy, and the plans that Scott and Larry have outlined on Investor Day and our earnings calls. So exciting to see all this momentum come together, both for the planet and for the company, and all these tailwinds coming together at the same time to set Vernova up for such great success. You're listening to Cutting Carbon. If you're interested in learning more about today's topic, please check out our show notes. And if you like what you hear, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's go back to the conversation. So, Roger, look, in the most conservative estimates, demand for global electricity is going to grow by 50% over the now to 2040. How do you balance the competing needs of meeting that need for electrification, whether that's supporting economies that are growing, population growth, electrification of other sectors? How do you balance those needs against the need for it to be more decarbonized at the same point? And what metric or metrics do you use? Do you put on a GE Vernova to measure your ability to manage what appear to be competing elements? First, Brian, on the electrification question, I think this is a good news story. I believe these are fully mutually achievable goals. And and whether we're pursuing electrification or decarbonization at any one moment, I'm confident we get to the same place. And that's good for both of those. As I said earlier, I see electrification more as the near-term driver. I think for a variety of reasons, there's this great urgency on the electrification push right now. But that benefits decarbonization. And no one's losing sight of the ultimate decarbonization goals. You get to the same place, and if we care about the outcomes, that's what we really care about is how do we get there. But I think the reason electrification is so front and center right now, it's not just me. The White House just kicked off a White House electrification initiative late last year that we're part of, and we're seeing these initiatives all around the world, is we talked about Ukraine, the tragedy there, and the targeting of the grid, you know, the lifeblood of Ukrainian civilization, where GE is really stepping up and prioritizing. It's the most important thing I think I'm doing right now 
is working with our government partners to help support the grid in Ukraine so that everybody has the opportunity to have the benefit of electricity and energy. But if you look at the more severe weather events, cybersecurity, the growth of renewables, which we're completely supporting, but the variability that introduces to the grid, and the fact that as other sectors look to decarbonize, they're going to look to the grid. They need to electrify. So we have to make these investments today to harden the grid for all these reasons. All of that benefits decarbonization. It makes the grid more efficient. It sets us up for more renewables. It enables us to decarbonize other sectors. And it makes power more durable at the same time. We have a grid business that has these great physical grid tools like HVDC, flexible transformers. And we have a digital grid business, which is an increasingly important player in making sure all this works together. So electrification, decarbonization, mutually achievable. In terms of the metrics, so we've got lots of metrics. I think every company does in this space. And when I think about the metrics, I tend to go, where can we have the most impact? Where can we really uniquely contribute these solutions to the world? So I think of three. The first is carbon intensity. And basically what that means is for all the equipment we're selling that helps produce one-third of the world's energy, basically, how much greenhouse gases are associated with that equipment. What we want to do over time is hopefully help the world provide more energy but on a proportionate basis, reduce the amount of greenhouse gases associated with that energy. So that's carbon intensity. And so we track that very closely, making sure that our intensity of the greenhouse gases associated with our equipment is constantly going down. So that's one of the metrics. But that's not enough, because you could argue that you can have your intensity go down, but you're still growing your emissions. So we've got that covered. The second metric is our scope three emissions from the products we sell. This is an absolute number. This is the total extent of our greenhouse gas emissions associated with the electricity equipment we provide around the world. So as our intensity goes down, we also want to see our absolute emissions go down. We've set targets for that. We've committed an ambition to be net zero by 2050. So we've got the absolute emissions covered too. And then the third metrics are yet to come. So this is just a little sneak peek of how Vernova, as it becomes a separate company, is going to set metrics and key performance indicators on how we're improving the quality of life for people around the world. How are we growing access to energy, to reliable energy? How are we training people from underserved communities, women, children, races and minorities that haven't typically been represented in these careers? How are we affirmatively going into those communities and geographies around the world to make sure they're represented? How are we holding ourselves accountable for that? Jobs and training. And how are we being good stewards of our community? So we're looking forward to, as we move forward through this journey, announcing an additional set of metrics that will focus beyond climate change and how we're just looking to lift up the quality of life for people all around the world. So, Roger, I want to pull on a a thread that you mentioned, talked about carbon intensity of the products that we sell. I want to think about that in the light of GE Vernova becoming a a new publicly traded company. And how do investors think about that? I'm going to paraphrase a quote from Evelyn Chow from the Wall Street Journal where she said, fundamentally, as an investor, how do you think about investing in a company like GE Vernova, focusing on decarbonization, and yet doing so will increase either an individual's and organization's carbon intensity of their portfolio. How do you view that kind of duality in that scenario? How do you explain that to an investor? Thanks for the question. Look, I certainly understand the perspective. We understand the vision 
of a renewable energy future. We're big cheerleaders for a renewable energy future. We're a renewable energy company, and we support that. Where I may differ with that quote is also seeing gas, in my view, as a not only differentiator, but a positive, as a source of strength in our decarbonization and electrification journey. And this is a question that comes up a lot. It's a fair question, different views on this, but I feel very strongly in why this is a source of strength for us and something that should be embraced by our investors. So let me just maybe share why that is. I have a pretty refined view on what it takes to succeed in the energy transition. We operate in 170 countries, help provide almost one third of the world's energy. 90% of the people in the world use our equipment, or 90% of providers. And so our perspective on how to succeed is, of course, we want to grow renewables. That's job number one. That's the top goal. Growing renewables as quickly as possible, making the grid more resilient, and investing in the breakthrough technologies for tomorrow. But we also have this very high conviction that gas plays a critical role in getting to our decarbonization goals. In many places in the world where we operate, it's frankly the quickest way to decarbonize. Switching to gas from other types of fuels, not just coal, even in many places, things that are even worse from a greenhouse gas perspective than coal, it can reduce emissions 50% or more. It's critical to growing electrification and access. We're here to make sure everybody in the world, including 700 million people who lack access to affordable, reliable, sustainable electricity, can turn the lights on, access healthcare, access economic opportunities. It's critical to growing renewable energy infrastructure. You need that solid inertia and that backbone of gas power and other types of conventional power to enable countries to get to their renewable energy goals, which we fully support. And so it's critical as a pathway to decarbonization. We've outlined in a lot of detail with Brian's help how we see gas playing that role. But at the same time, we don't see the greenhouse gas emissions with gas with having permanency over the next 30 years. We're investing in hydrogen at the pre-combustion stage. Our turbines have run for more than 8 million hours on hydrogen blends to decarbonize gas pre-combustion. And we're investing in carbon capture and sequestration on the post-combustion stage. So we want gas turbines to have a continued role to play here because we think they're critical. But we're not taking a blind eye to the greenhouse gas emissions associated with it. We're looking at that full decarbonization pathway. And I have to say at this point, it's not just the GE view. If you look at the EU taxonomy, which is now endorsed gas as part of the EU taxonomy, if you look at energy security issues, Larry Fink's letter from just a few weeks ago said fossil fuels like natural gas with steps taken to mitigate emissions, which we're doing, will remain important sources of energy for many years ahead. If you look at what the UAE is doing, COP28, very fossil fuel intensive country, but looking at innovating the technology to decarbonize it, I think this is a differentiator for us. I think this is a strength for us. It helps us across our full portfolio, strengthens the investment case, and increases the likelihood we're going to be successful in helping our countries and our customers realize their decarbonization goals. That's great, Roger. So if I just think about that kind of in summary, right, and again, thinking about those companies who on the investment side who only want to invest in, let's say, a pure renewable company, maybe those folks see our thermal businesses, our gas and steam power businesses a barrier. But what I've heard you say is that's the wrong way to think of it. Maybe the right way to think of it is those businesses are kind of maybe foundational to providing that secure, reliable power today. They allow for rapid decarbonization in places where maybe you don't have the ability to do wind or some of these other things or move away from carbon-intense fuels. So 
there's some real advantages to those technologies that shouldn't be ignored. Jeff, I think you've summarized it well. Maybe I can make one more analogy here. There's a big debate in a lot of what I do. Who's going to solve for decarbonization and climate change? Is it going to be the incumbents or is it going to be the startups? And you see both sides of this taking extreme ends of that continuum. You see some of you know, the legacy companies say, oh, it has to be the incumbents. You see the startups saying, no, this is all about the startups. I think the startups are kind of the renewable energy pure plays. We're probably thought of as an incumbent with our diverse technologies and our legacy. So we take a different view of everybody else. We take this view that it's both. It's the best of both worlds approach, that you want to have the legacy, the scale, the experience, frankly, the self-sustaining business model that we talked about earlier of an incumbent, but you want the passion, the energy, the get-it-done attitude of a startup. And that's the beauty of GE Vernova is we're bringing the best of both worlds approach together. Even our name combines both of those elements together. And so just a couple of weeks ago, we had a big announcement at ARPA-E, a big DOE event in D.C., and we were announcing a, a new carbon capture technology, just a proof point for my messages earlier that we are invested in carbon capture and decarbonizing our turbines. And one of the publications, I think it was Axios, wrote my favorite headline, because I've been saying this internally for a long time, and the headline of this was century-old GE joins carbon removal race featuring startups. And I thought, I could not have written that any better, because it captures exactly what we're trying to do here, bring the legacy of what we do best, our scale and our expertise in this, some of the world's most complicated technology, but acting like a startup, which I think people associate with renewables companies. So it's not just my view. I'm glad to see that others on the outside are increasingly picking up on this theme as well. So Roger, as we think about that startup mentality and, and the need for some of these breakthrough technologies, you talked about a few of them. You mentioned hydrogen carbon capture. What are some of the other the technologies that you think are going to be so critical, either in the, the short and medium term or maybe the longer term, that excite you most? Well, you're right. We talked about a few of them. I don't want to dismiss any of them. And one of the ones I would point out would be the grid, which I, I think we can never take for granted, both the physical grid technology, which is state-of-the-art, critical for all of this, as well as the digital tools. And I think you're going to be hearing a lot more about our digital tools as we go forward here, which are increasingly important. But everybody loves a turnaround story or a comeback story. And so my favorite comeback story is our nuclear business, and particularly small modular reactors. This is probably the technology that I think is rapidly emerging as a technology of 2023. And just a couple of weeks ago in D.C., we had this amazing opportunity to talk about our BWRX, our small modular reactor, which in my view is kind of leading the charge in this space. And we pulled together the Tennessee Valley Authority, Ontario Power Generation, Synthos Green Energy from Poland, and we had an event in D.C. It wasn't far from Capitol Hill, but it wasn't on Capitol Hill. We had Republicans there. We had Democrats there. We had senators there. We had congresspeople there. And it was a busy day on Capitol Hill. They had to do votes. But everybody wanted to be part of this event. They were literally rushing to get into the door. Some were delayed by votes. They showed up late. They took the stage. They wanted to be on the record to just reinforce this bipartisan support for the BWRX and for small modular reactors. I haven't seen anything in this space that had so much consensus that this is the way to go, this is the right technology, everybody just being aligned. And if you think about where it was just two or three years ago, it would have been a much more controversial view. So I'm really excited about small modular reactors, BWRX, our specific technology, and happy to see the momentum this is getting because I, I think we would all agree this is a critical part of our decarbonization electrification goal. And we're proud to have a technology here that's being embraced so widely and so globally 
by so many stakeholders. So Roger, I want to pull on a, a thread that you've mentioned previously, and I really want to focus on this concept of ESG, environmental, social, and governance commitments. And maybe you can share with our listeners the GE Vernova perspective. What are we doing in this space? What are we doing around scope one, scope two? And you, you did mention a little bit scope three emissions, but what are we doing in that space? And again, as a reminder for our listeners, scope one and scope two have to do to some degree with direct and indirect emissions electricity that we may be producing or vehicles that employees are driving, et cetera. But scope three is the full greenhouse gas emissions from not only our products, but our supply chain. So Roger, if you can just give our listeners some insight as, as to what's going on in that space. Sure, Jeff. There's so many advantages, I think, of the legal separation that GE Healthcare, GE Aerospace, GE Renova is going through and setting up each of these companies for respective success. And ESG and sustainability maybe isn't the first thing that comes to mind, but it's another great example of how much more successful I think we're going to be as separate companies, each aerospace, healthcare, and Vernova, than as part of one thing that's trying to do many things. And the reason for that, if you think about the healthcare sector, the aviation sector, the energy sector, we have vastly different stakeholders. And our different stakeholders have different pressures. Energy is frequently seen as in the lead when it comes to climate change, decarbonization, it has to be the first to decarbonize. I think that also translates to sustainability. The expectations are higher in the energy space than arguably they are in, in healthcare and aviation. Not that they're low expectations, but everything is a continuum. And energy is kind of in that top 99% percentile of where our customer expectations are, where our government expectations are, where our competitor expectations are, and the fact that a lot of this derives out of the EU. So by being able to be a separate company, we're able to set ESG goals and targets that align to the heightened expectations where healthcare is able to set its targets aligned to its expectations, aerospace, and so on. So we do have strong scope one, scope two, scope three commitments we're very proud of today. Carbon neutrality by 2030 for scope one and scope two, and a very impactful ambition to be net zero from the emissions from the products we sell in scope three, which basically is an ambition to decarbonize the energy sector. So I don't want to skip over those. If we can succeed for those, which we will, we're going to solve some of the world's biggest problems. But what I'm excited about today, we have those ambitions. We're executing on those. We'll be updating shortly on those in our sustainability report. But with Vernova being able to pursue targets and ambitions in line with the energy sector, I'm looking forward to sharing with you, assuming you invite me back, what's coming down the pike, what we're working on now for day one. Strengthen commitments to product stewardship and circularity, how we design our products from cradle to grave, to be strong stewards of water, of waste, to design around heightened expectations for the environmental factors. Targets for diversity and inclusion, environmental justice and lifting up underserved communities. And so we're really excited about where we're going. This is the exercise where we're spending a lot of time. And in addition to that, another pillar, which I alluded to earlier, is what are some metrics and KPIs that we can identify for Vernova that's going to just help show that we're trying to make the world better and hold ourselves accountable to this, lifting up the quality of life for people, making sure we're inspiring people to pursue careers in this space, growing access to affordable, reliable electricity and things like that. So we want to emerge on day one, not only as a decarbonization and energy leader, but really as a true sustainability leader 
in what is probably the loftiest of these sectors. So I'm going to be a little vague around that. I don't want to spoil it. I'm hoping you'll have me back a little later in the year and we can get into some more details around this. But you can tell we're really excited. We've got a great team and all the businesses who are coming, bring a lot of passion to this, including our employees who are also going to have an employee-focused metric on how we can have this impact on day one. Roger, that's pretty exciting and a great vision as, as an employee. I'm really excited, not just about Bernova, but kind of the trajectory we're having as a company with some pretty intense goals around sustainability and what we've got to go do for the planet. So thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for letting me share all this. Oh, my pleasure. And um, again, for all of our listeners, if, if you have any questions for Roger or any of our guests, please don't hesitate to drop us a line at cutting.carbon at ge.com. For the entire podcast team, myself, Brian, everyone behind the scenes, Roger, again, thank you so very much for joining us today. This is Cutting Carbon.